Good afternoon. It's Monday the 15th of November 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me via video link is Brian Gerrish and also David Scott. Uh, welcome to the programme, both of you. Uh, and Brian, uh, we'll just get straight on because we've got a lot to cover today. So uh, we're beginning with uh, with Tobias Elwood. Uh, and uh, well, you've got the Express here uh, quoting him. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Yes, of course, this this is um, just an incredible headline. A couple of people flagged it up for me, sent it through. I spent some time looking at it and we thought it's worth picking it apart on UK column today. Um, so what does that slide say? Let's have a look at what the Express was talking about. It had a banner headline on a, on a video clip, Russia threat of invasion of Ukraine, discussed by Elwood. Um, more than entire British army. Satellite shows size of Russian troop deployment on the border. And then embedded as well, we've got a um, to the right of the uh, Express uh, webpage, we've got a little insert there. It says, Poland prepares for attack tonight. Fears of major assault as thousands gathered. So if we're to believe the uh, Express, and I encourage people not to, uh, we're being told that tonight World War Three is starting, but here we are. We're all at home. Government in UK doesn't seem bothered. Um, just incredible hype in this article. And uh, I thought the best way of dealing with it is to have a look at at how the uh, the Express brought the information through. So if we go to the next slide, we've got a gentleman called Rohit uh, Kachru, who's apparently the ITV's uh, global security reporter. And uh, let's have a look at what he's uh, saying there. Uh, the latest images show tens of thousands of Russian, I've put that in, but that's what he was talking about. Uh, tens of thousands of Russian ground military forces, tanks and armoured personnel carriers. So this is a, a flat statement. There's no real context to it. And it's when we start looking at the context uh, that we begin to understand what's happening. And, uh, of course, he goes on. Many of uh, Russia's forces have been massing near the town of uh, Yelnya, which is 160 miles north of the Ukrainian border. So any member of the UK public or an, indeed an international, um, uh, international audience would be thinking that we are literally watching the start of World War Two, uh, World War Three, but that's not what's happening, as we'll see in a minute. So um, the, the intrepid reporter goes on. He said uh, they they are said to have started gathering there a few weeks ago, and now we get a little cl clue as to what's happening because this is not detailed analysis by this reporter. This is hearsay. It's been rumoured. Uh, that these troops have started gathering. Well, why are they gathering? Uh, what does the um, Express go on to talk about with that? Well, now we get a whole lot of anonymous comments coming in, and I think this is really, this is really crass reporting by the Express. They should be picked up for it. We've got this one here, which is apparently from an anonymous Express NATO source. And that says that the pattern of Russian behavior, the patterns of Russia behavior are different from what we have seen before. There's no context again. So what behavior are we talking about? Well, we get a clue from the uh, the next one. 
uh, because it says so far it's unclear if this military build-up is intended to lead to an inc- incursion into Ukraine or it is, quote, just another exercise. And now we get down to the real meat of it because it is perfectly normal for the Russians or the Americans or the British or NATO to be running exercises. And when they do those exercises, they often move large numbers of troops around because that's how you practice your military plans. So completely normal exercises happen. And of course, for the Russians, for them to be moving troops near to their border areas is perfectly natural in their military doctrine, because what are they trying to defend? They're trying to defend their own borders. But the um, the express comment goes on. And now we get an anonymous British defence expert who that person is. We've no idea. And they say the anxiety is because we don't know what's going to happen. Okay, so we're all going to be fearful because apparently now the whole of UK's intelligence services are so um, incapable. We we simply have no idea what the Russians are up to and we should all get anxious and be very fearful. And that particular source goes on a bit more. It says it's an unpredictable situation. Now, I'd say to people in UK, think about what this really means. If it is truly unpredictable, why are we wasting our time with our uh, intelligence services? Because they can't predict what Russia is going to do. And um, if it's a completely unpredictable uh, situation, it's pointless reporting on it. Well, of course, this is not the case. What we are seeing is a large Russian exercise which is being hyped up suit the agenda, and this is what Tobias Elwood is really doing, um, to make the UK population fearful. So it went on with some uh, US officials. This one was earlier this week. US officials shared with European allies their fears of a potential Russian troop invasion. So we don't know who said this, but now we're back on the rhetoric. We've got a military exercise going on But this is now turned into the public should be anxious and invasion is going to start. We can't predict what they're doing. I'm I'm going to come back to you, Mike, before I do the next section and say this is just incredible propaganda coming out through the Express and Tobias Elwood. Uh, Well, I think that's I think that's absolutely right, Brian. Um, I think uh, if there is any real fear uh, I, I've got. I know people in the northeast of Poland. Uh, they are actually, you know, because they're right on the on the front line, as it were. They're particularly fearful of what is coming because the Polish government, frankly, is doing everything that it can to uh, to, to create a situation. Um, the, the, this has been building up and building up for many many years between Poland and uh, Belarus, and. You know, there's the, if there is any uh, actual, uh, uh, what's the what's the term? If there's any actual activity between the Polish and the Belarusians, it doesn't mean that the Russians are just going to wade in, uh, despite the fact that they ran their exercise last week. Uh, it's much more likely that, uh, well, I mean, we'll, I think we're going to come on to the, the British army and what it's been doing in Poland over the next, over the last uh, couple of days. Uh, but of course, we've also got to remember that the United States has been there for 
for what, a couple of years now, uh, effectively as an occupying power in northeast Poland and Lithuania and Latvia as well. So, you know, and this is, this is, sorry, I was just going to say, this is, this, what's going on at the moment can't be separated from everything that we've seen out of the British government over the last uh, five, six years. Uh, you know, what, what I'm talking about integrity initiative. I'm talking about the Christopher Steele dossier. I'm talking about the claims of Russian interference, not only in the US elections, but the Brexit process and so on. And this is, this is, uh, I believe, an attempt to, to ramp up fear levels to a new degree, which, because all those narratives basically failed. And Novichok is another example of a narrative that basically failed. Um, so, uh, but it, it, you know, I understand your position here, Brian, but do you not feel that, that if you play these games, there is a risk of, of uh, you know, mistakes happening? Uh, well, absolutely, that's the case. And of course, when uh, when large scale exercises take place, uh, previously it was uh, it was the norm that each side warned the other. Indeed, military observers were invited in to watch what was going on. But when you saw the West's build up in through Poland, missile systems brought in by the U.S. Those were bringing major military units up effectively right onto the Russian border. So if we take a balanced view, um, the actions by the West at the moment are seen by the Russians as extremely dangerous. They're going to react. But I agree with you. If you keep stirring this pot, mistakes can happen and things can kick off and escalate. And then we've we've got real trouble. Do, do I believe? that at the moment the West, uh, NATO and the European Union are about de-escalating what's happening in Eastern Europe. I don't. I believe that they're there to help ramp it up. Um, but just to come back on Tobias Elwood, the uh, Express article there had a little embedded clip. I'm oh, sorry, just before I get to this one, Mike, had a little embedded clip. And uh, in the interview with uh, BBC Radio 4, the interviewer said to Tobias Elwood, uh, Elwood, well, this is really um, a kick in the pants for the West by the US saying, pay attention to what Russia is up to. Um, but but do you think this is based on genuine intelligence material um, or, or is it to do with a reflection? And at the point, Tobias El Elwood steps in and said, well, yeah, effectively, this is more a reflection. So now we've gone from a potential invasion to the fact we're beginning to see that 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 it's claims and counterclaims rattling around. Okay, let's move on to that next slide then, because I've come back and labelled it differently. Because we're saying that the Russian troop movement was more than the entire British army, but this this is just misleading the public again. Because what is the British army? If if you uh, if you go on to the next slide. Um, essentially, the, the British Army doesn't exist anymore, and it hasn't existed for quite a few years. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because it's only capable of putting two divisions into the field. So the British Army on the scale of armies of the scale of the US and the Russians, it doesn't feature at all. It's gone. And when we talk about 600 SAS and paratroopers disappearing off to Eastern Europe to get involved. 
this is just absolute nonsense. What those people are going to do is advise the national troops in the host countries, and it is their populations which are going to be used for the fighting on the ground. So I'll just finish off this section very quickly because I know we've got a lot to cover. Uh, we mentioned a few days ago what was really happening in the British Army. We had the Centre for Leadership, which was going full out to bring the woke agenda into the army. So the army doesn't exist in terms of numbers and capability. And what's left is being destroyed by the introduction of intersectionality and the woke agenda. Um, we put up a, a slide saying that uh, climate change had become terribly important for army leadership. Uh, we'd pointed out that the army leadership centre uh, clearly felt that it would be good to get troops on the streets alongside the police, or that's what their image here with the paratroopers suggested. But where does this lead to? Uh, well, it leads to the fact that now we've got the lobbying inside what's left of the military for more women to take more places. And I know this might upset a few people, but it needs to be talked about. At the end of the day, the women inside what's left of the army. Uh, are they frontline troops? Well, the analysis would suggest not. That's the harsh reality. But of course, under intersectionality, uh, we've got to be pushing that. And the next uh, slide I've taken from the Mirror and the, uh, and the uh, Daily Mail, where we've got a corporal um, who's just been demoted for punching recruits in the stomach. Now, apparently this lady... Uh, a very keen boxer, um, but she was hitting recruits, male and female, in the stomach and has been caught out. But what's her real agenda? I'm going to suggest this is the result of this woke agenda in the armed forces. And uh, on the image, I've put a yellow arrow. This is a small point, but she's wearing a ring on her left thumb. In my opinion, for anybody to be wearing jewellery in the military is wrong because particularly rings can be very dangerous. But I think she's flaunting her sexuality. And this is another part of, of what's going on to destroy what's left of the army. So I'll just finish very quickly that we've got the uh, slide from the leadership document, uh, which was showing the females leaving a rugby game or a football game. And we asked, what was this really about? What it's about is the woke agenda is more important than defence. And then uh, a slide from Alex a couple of days ago where he was talking about the fact that uh, we are showing greater and greater weakness in how we look after our strategic assets. So if we can't make high tech components, we can't make steel, for example, we can't fight a war. And uh, surely if Russia was such a great threat, we would be investing in those strategic supplies. And lastly, I'm going to say if there's anybody who um, doesn't understand the scale of warfare on a historical basis on the Eastern Front, uh, this is a really outstanding animated uh, um, clip uh, from um, a website that animates the whole of the fighting on the Eastern Front. It shows the troop numbers. Uh, what have we got? Green with uh, 1.2 million, I think it is, for the Russians, and about uh, 900,000 or 1. Point, sorry, 1.9 million for the Germans. 
and you will see formations of 90, 100,000 men swallowed. So comparing anything to do with the British Army, uh, just nonsense. I got to end by saying, Mike, I think we're in really dire straits at the moment because it's clear that Britain's military is being taken apart whilst our politicians ramp up uh, problems which could cause those very wars overseas. Um, right, thanks for that, Brian. Now, uh, David, just before we move on, uh, have you got any thoughts on what we've covered so far? Um, well, a few. Uh, 160 miles from the border, that's Edinburgh to York. It's not exactly adjacent. They're not exactly tanks lined up on the border here. Um, in fact, it's well within Russia. Um, Poland has been a member of NATO since 1999, subject to collective defence. Russia has never shown any sign of being uh, unwise enough, stupid enough to have any sort of blundering attack without um, thought into uh, into a NATO country. It, it's it, it's just not a credible um, idea. Um, but the, the 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 chance of miscalculation, the chance of things to develop uh, their own. Um, uh, momentum uh, makes us think of the Six Days War, makes us think of uh, of the lead up to World War One, and um, the, uh, the 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 unwise nature of of the political leadership that's on display here uh, actually dwarfs um, what was present uh, at those times. Um, well, not just the uh, political leadership, although. It, it... <laughs> Stoltenberg is incre you know, increasingly a political animal, but uh, this is a statement from, the North, from NATO, from the uh, North Atlantic Council, uh, on the situation at the Poland-Belarus border. And they're saying the North Atlantic Council strongly condemns the continuing instrumentalization of irregular migration artificially created by Belarus as part of the hybrid actions targeted against Poland, Lithuania and Latvia for political purposes. So it's interesting that uh, what we're seeing is this term hybrid being used by NATO. It's also being used by the British government, by Liz Truss, by everybody that's commenting on this. So we're, up, we're seeing the rapid response mechanism at work here um, as they have already established a common narrative uh, between all the various spokespeople. Uh, we remain vigilant against the risk of further escalation and provocation for Belarus at its borders with Poland, Lith Lithuania and Latvia and will continue to monitor the implications uh, for the security of the alliance. Now, of course, Poland itself, its government is a bit off its head most of the time, uh, and they are very much excited by this support from NATO. So here is uh, Marcin Przytasz, uh, uh, sorry, I pronounced that incorrectly, but he's the, uh, uh, he is the deputy foreign minister. Uh, and to translate this, it says, uh, all 30 allies on the Polish, Latvian and Lithuanian side, one for all, all for one. Polish diplomacy continues its activities. Uh, so the point here is he's, you know, citing effectively the, uh, uh, the three musketeers. Uh, th this is Article 8 of NATO, a reliance on the, the, the idea of Article 8 that an attack on one is an attack on all and therefore NATO will come riding to the rescue. And this is pretty much what Poland is relying on. But uh, just reiterate once again, this uh, real uh, anger and angst against Belarus has been building up within Poland for a very long time. Um, and Russia, of course, because, you know, the, the Polish just hit Russia, and the Polish government at least hits Russia as, as uh, 
you know, they are probably one of the uh, most rabid in this sense. But look, we have to rely on the wonderful Liz Truss, our very own foreign secretary, to give us the British view. So here's her article in The Telegraph, um, and it's called, We Must Stand Together for Freedom and Democracy. And uh, we'll try not to laugh as we run very quickly through what she has to say here. Uh, we believe in freedom and democracy. Uh, does anybody here believe that the British government believes in freedom and democracy? I don't think so. But anyway, freedom-loving societies are not just the best place to live. They are the most successful, she said. Uh, but look what's happening in Belarus. The escalating standoff at the Polish border marks the latest step by the Lukashenko regime to undermine regional security. He's using desperate migrants as pawns in his bid to create instability and cling on to power, regardless of the human cost. The United Kingdom will not look away. We'll stand with our allies in the region we're on the, who are on the frontier of freedom, because that's the frontier of freedom. Just make no mistake about that. Uh, that's why we're proud to be the first European country to assist Poland by agreeing to send a small team of personnel to provide engineering support to ease pressure at the border. In the same way, we were, we were the first European country to put sanctions on the Lukashenko regime, targeting over 100 individuals and organizations with measures including asset freezes and travel bans. Uh, at the NATO Foreign Ministers Summit in Riga a few, in a few weeks' time, we'll put forward new proposals to challenge the 21st century methods of aggression being used by those who threaten our freedoms, economies, and democracies. Together with our friends and allies, we can build a network of liberty uh, working to repel uh, these malign actors uh, to ensure freedom-loving people can live in peace. Um, so that's what her position was. In the meantime, what was Putin's position? Well, he was pretty clear about it. It's important to remember where the migration crisis came from. Uh, is it Belarus that, well, this is a bad translation, I suspect. I don't think it was discovered such problems. I think it's uh, caused such problems is, is more appropriate. Um, and, and he went on, this was an, an interview he was given to Russian uh, television yesterday. Um, and he went on to talk about the fact that really uh, it was Western countries, Britain, the United States, uh, and other European countries had caused this problem in, through their interventions in the Middle East in the first place. Uh, he went on to say, no, there are reasons that, uh, that were created by Western countries themselves, including European countries. Uh, they're, uh, they're both of military and economic nature. I want everyone to know that we have nothing to do with it. So he's uh, absolutely clear, Brian, on this. Uh, and uh, I think... It's a fair point. I mean, he, it's, only the, it's only the British and Western powers that are really uh, making any kind of allegation, that, and it, it has no basis. Well, uh, uh, Mike, what if, whatever people try and say about Putin, um, he's a Russian, and one of the things he's going to know all about is the great patriotic war, and he's going to know that... Um, well, the figures are somewhere 20, 26 million Russians died during the war. And this is not something that you are going to play around with um, with World War Three in 2021. So I think there's a maturity there with Putin, which we are never going to see with Boris and his ilk, Tobias Elwood et al., because they have no experience of what we're really dealing with. On screen, I've got some uh, particularly interesting information from Business Insider, um, a gentleman called Randy Olson uh, had a look at the fraction of uh, countries' populations which died in the Second World War, and top is Belarus. And basically, they lost about 2.3 million, and that represented uh, 
I'll just draw this, bring this up on screen, about 25% of the population. Poland uh, lost about 18% of its population. The Ukraine, about the same. So Poland, you're talking about 5.8 million deaths. Uh, Ukraine, 6.8 million. And the rest of USSR is labelled 16.8 million. Uh, where's France? 550,000. UK, 450,000. United States, 420,000. So if we look in really calculated terms at the deaths from the Second World War, the West doesn't even figure on the scale. And in my view, this is why Putin is not playing games, because he knows exactly what the real result of more trouble would be. So who's causing the trouble at the moment? Uh, do we trust the British government? I certainly don't, and I haven't for a great many years. Do I trust the Biden administration? No. Um, what are they doing? I think they're, caught, they're stirring. I think at the moment it is the West stirring the trouble. And I never believed that I would be saying such a thing in 2021. Uh, indeed. OK, let's, uh, let's move on then to, uh, to COP. Uh, 26 now, of course, it's finished. Uh, and well, what a success it wasn't. Um, so uh, the road to COP26, over 90% of emissions now covered by net zero commitments, uh, nationally determined contributions now cover 80% of global emissions and so on, except it didn't really go very well. They created this Glasgow Climate Pact. Um, and uh, well, uh, here's uh, Alex Sharma, who is trying to put a brave face on it. But uh, when it came to the crunch, of course, India and China uh, effectively, well, pulled the rug out from under it because they weren't prepared to let go of coal. Um, so uh, Sharma said uh, India and China would have to explain themselves to poor nations uh, that he was left deeply frustrated by the fact that they pulled out of, or at least watered down the agreement. Uh, we're on the way to consigning coal to history is what uh, he said. Uh, this is an agreement we can build on. Uh, but in the case of China and India, they'll have to explain to climate vulnerable countries why they did what they did. Uh, well, of course, the reason they did what they did, uh, David, was because uh, from an economic standpoint, particularly poorer nations are still reliant on coal, very much so. And in fact, uh, I don't think uh, India and China is going to have to explain anything to poorer nations because uh, it was uh, for many, particularly African countries, the possibility of losing coal as an energy source uh, was causing them a great deal of trouble. Um, so uh, I think uh, they're probably thanking uh, China and India at this point. Yeah, so they, I'm sure they are. And uh, the, the issue here is, of course, reality. Reality will, will reassert itself. Um, the, the followers of the science uh, are, are peddling a delusion. Uh, did you enjoy, Mike, the sight of a Conservative Prime Minister coming to Glasgow and announcing the end of the coal industry, only to be cheered on by all the socialists therein? Uh, and their only, their only criticism was, it's not fast enough. I thought that was quite an interesting moment in history. Um, and um, the, the reality of the situation is that energy is, is needed to preserve life in many parts of the world, and that energy is going to be needed um, in, in various forms, including coal, oil, uh, gas, and uh, this, will, this will trump survival, ultimately, human survival, 
and self-interest will trump theory stories in the final analysis. Um, so uh, some commentary amongst the cartoonists then. Yes, uh, Matt here talking about COP26 and the question is, can we water down the blah, blah, blah clause here? Uh, I thought that was very good. That was actually very heartening. This is exactly the level of commitment we need. Um, but I thought this was particularly interesting. This is a data set from a weather station in the English Midlands. Uh, it has a data set uh, uh, reaching back 360 years of unbroken data collection in the in the wonderful world of uh, of weather and uh, this is the temperature data set and it shows the uh, monthly average and annual average for that 360 years and you'll see there just how much global warming cat catastrophe and crisis we are experiencing uh, the answer is of course nothing and that's before we get into mike the issue of a uh, completely obscured and all of the the fear mongering that uh, all of the models if you believe their science their science all of the models shows uh, that decades out uh, global warming is in fact beneficial for humanity not the catastrophe we're always hearing about um, i suppose uh, david we should just uh, remind ourselves is the, the one uh, negative uh, when we're going to be coming on to this in a bit more uh, later on in the program, or at least related news, uh, is the Glasgow Financial Alliance, Alliance for Net Zero. This is Mark Carnage's uh, uh, efforts to, and, and Rishi Sunak's efforts to, uh, to mobilize $130 trillion. I mean, first of all, $130 trillion figure is, is sort of nonsense because that is uh, the total uh, alleged assets under management of what is it, 45 countries, uh, company, 450 financial companies are across 45 countries. So, you know, it, it's, it's a bit pie in the sky in a sense, but actually there's a policy that, uh, that runs behind that, which is less uh, endearing. The policy is threatening. The policy is totalitarian and, and deeply sinister. Uh, and the power grab that, that goes along with it is some, something we absolutely should be wa watching for. It's simply a, a bit of a relief that in this particular occasion at this time, um, the lies have not really gained sufficient traction to immediately uh, make all of our lives uh, more miserable. Um, I, there is one success, however, and, and I often criticise her and I often say she's intellectually incapable, but there's been one outstanding success of COP26, and that is, is Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, here we go, Russell Finlay uh, commenting on Nicola. I haven't had many selfies, Sturgeon, right? Where all the other politicians were talking about climate change and crisis. Nicola alone recognised what this is about. Naked self-promotion and uh, meaningless virtue signalling. And didn't she do well? Uh, it looks uh, highly impressive. Uh, we any idea what the total selfie count is? Uh, no one can count. Um, it's, it's still been added up. It is very substantial. The selfies just kept coming. She has several photographers following around, plus her own selfie stick, and the selfies uh, all seem almost without end. Uh, I'm sure she will have a lovely photograph album when she goes for her next job interview in the United Nations. Okay, thank you for that, David. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and uh, if you're watching the programme for free, uh, then we do need your support. So if you could join us, that would be fantastic. Uh, please share our material on the various platforms as you find it. Um, continuing reminder that uh, UK Column 
hoodies are still available on the UK column shop. So thank you very much for everybody that has uh, uh, got hold of one of those. Uh, and uh, um, Brian, uh, David Noakes, it's now up to £21,471. Well, I've got to say it's not. It's now up to 22000 uh, because it's been moving uh, this morning. Uh, this is absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much to everybody who's donated. Um, and I'll just say that in the last few days, I've been able to speak to David Noakes' son, Andrew. And uh, we just did a little 17-minute clip with Andrew talking about his father and his father's situation in prison and uh, the background to the fundraiser. We've got a, a short clip from that little interview, I think, here, ready to go. Well, good evening to all our UK column viewers. I'm delighted to be joined this evening by Andrew Noakes. Uh, Andrew is the son of David Noakes, and of course, people who are watching and listening to the UK column on a regular basis will know that we have been strongly supporting a fundraiser for David Noakes, and this is to raise money to pay for legal fees in order to help his situation in France. So, Andrew, a very big thank you for agreeing to come and speak tonight. Oh, thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much for everything you're doing for my dad. It's, it's been incredible. Thank you for the support. Well, that's, that's a pleasure. And of course, we've got to say it's not us. It's all the good people that have actually contributed to that, uh, that uh, GoFundMe page. And we'll come on to that a bit in a minute. David is having a very rough time in prison. How does he view the charges against him? What's going through his head at the moment? He's very proactive. And he, he is a fighter. He's trying his best to put, to get, put together a coherent case with his lawyer. Um, but he, he does feel demotiv demotivated because of the situation, because of the stress he's under. So he is trying his best at the moment, but it's, it's, very, it's been very difficult for him. Yeah. Very difficult. And uh, the last time I had communication with his with his brother, Peter, Peter said to me that uh, David was particularly suffering because he'd learned that there were now further charges uh, being put against him, which were coming out of Switzerland. So we've had the double jeopardy issue between UK and France. And now we've got another country, Switzerland, jumping on the bandwagon, seemingly wanting to... Um, um, well, uh, to bring him before a court for the same issues that he's already been tried for in UK and France. But have I got that correct? Yeah, it, it's there's there's some truth to that. It is it's like double jeopardy. They each case, they, each each time, it's slightly different the charge, but it it's really it's really it's really very similar. And he has already served his time in the UK. He's already served time for the crime. And now it now he's been extradited to France and the pending extradition to Switzerland. And the question is for him, when will it end? So so um, very clearly put by Andrew, we cover other things about his uh, prison conditions, etc. And the full clip will be up on the UK column uh, website. Uh, so have a look out that. 
And uh, if if you're supporting uh, David Scott, please share this um, so that we can reach that 50K total, which he needs. David Noakes, Brian. Okay, just... Sorry, David Noakes needs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes, go uh, go ahead. Just moving on. Uh, We've got the video up of part two of Christine Cotton. Christine is the French biostatistician who's been analysing the US VAERS vaccine adverse reaction data. Uh, This, I think, is a very important interview. But if you haven't watched part one, please watch that first. And then also the second uh, interview we've now got up is is the interview with independent undertaker John O'Looney, who's talking about the so-called COVID-19 pandemic and deaths related to that, and particularly the deaths of elderly people. Serious subject, but we need to talk about it. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, let's see where we are. The JCVI has released a statement uh, on boosters and the second jabs for 16 and 17 year olds. So the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization has advised that in addition to those aged over 50 years and at higher risk from coronavirus, uh, all adults aged 40 to 49 should be offered an mRNA booster uh, six months after the second dose, irrespective of the vaccines given for the first and second doses. Uh, Following two doses of the vaccine as yet, there's no robust evidence, they went on to say, of a decline in protection against severe COVID-19, brackets, hospitalization and deaths in those aged under 40. Uh, The JCVI will continue to closely review all available data to develop further advice in due course. Um, And uh, so the JCVI is therefore also advising that all 16 to 17 year olds who are not in an at-risk group should be offered a second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, The second vaccine dose should be given 12 weeks or more following the first vaccine dose. Uh, And this is what uh, Professor uh, Y. Shen Lim had to say. He's from the JCVI. Booster vaccine doses in more vulnerable adults. That's the wrong quote, so I apologize for that. Uh, But anyway, June Rain had something to say. We welcome today's announcement by the uh, JCVI on the extension of the booster campaign to 40 to 49-year-olds. This further strengthens our ability to ensure people that are uh, are protected against COVID-19 and saves lives. Our safety monitoring to date shows that COVID-19 vaccines continue to have a positive safety profile for the majority of people. It doesn't say what size the majority, uh, but uh, for the majority of people. uh, We have continued to carefully scrutinize all the data we have available to us and our robust surveillance program includes monitoring all suspected reactions for adolescents as well as adults. Um, Just briefly, Brian, do you think that's an accurate statement? Uh, well, it's accurate in that it's a uh, usual inaccuracies. What is what is disgraceful about the MHRA? Remember, they're the people that have put David Noakes in prison for trying to help people with cancer. But what is disgraceful about the MHRA and June Rain is that she keeps telling us what work they're doing to look at this data, but absolutely nothing has been published for the public showing the results. So we have uh, well over a million adverse effects. We've got 1,700 plus deaths. When you say, where is the evidence showing what the relationship of these adverse effects and the deaths is um, with the with the reality, I, are these vaccine adverse effects? There's no data given at all. So we're just given a smokescreen to fob off the public whilst they are hoovering up vaccine adverse reaction data 
by the yellow card system. It's it's so cynical and callous, Mike, it's unbelievable. This lady is also on record as saying that every death which is recorded under the yellow card system is investigated. But we know for a fact from the relatives of people who've died with an adverse reaction that the MHRA has done no investigation. So she's either not telling the truth, she's lying, or she's misinformed, or she's being deceived by her own organisation, and she's incompetent because she's running an organisation where she doesn't know what's, what's going on. I'd like to see this lady brought in front of a public inquiry, and uh, that... not, not in six months' time, tomorrow. Yes. Uh, well, with regard to uh, vaccination of uh, 16, 17-year-olds, uh, the expert working group of the Commission on Human Medicines, she says, has confirmed that reports of suspected myocarditis, that brackets heart inflammation, uh, following COVID-19 vaccines are extremely rare, and the balance of risks and benefits overall remains favourable. So that's all right then, David. Well, it would be if they could answer our question repeatedly asked of them to show us the risk assessment, but apparently it doesn't exist, or if it exists, it's um, secret. Did I correctly understand what she said there? Did June Rain just say that for up to 49% of people, the, the COVID vaccine has a negative safety profile? Uh, well, well, that's that's what I say. She didn't specify the size of the majority. So indeed, it could be up to 49%. That's correct. Yes. Um, so which brings us uh, back to, uh, to, to uh, well, who's this? Bill Gates. Brian. Yes, I spotted this one. I've got to apologize because I'm not sure the date of this, but uh, it's Zero Hedge. Uh, put out a policy exchange video clip well worth watching. And what they picked out is that basically Bill Gates was now admitting that his vaccines didn't work. So uh, what was the quote here? A little noticed interview from last week with a UK think tank saw Microsoft founder Bill Gates make some incredible statements about his most prized solution to the pandemic. Quote, we didn't have vaccines that block transmission, said Gates, contradicting previous interviews in which he claimed the shots significantly block transmission. Quote, we got vaccines that help you with your health, but they only slightly reduce the transmission, unquote. And then it goes on to say, or, or uh, Zero Hedge says, the vast majority of the interview involves Gates demanding totalitarian solutions to bad weather, which he refers to as climate change. And so Zero Hedge really saying we just don't know what to make of it. Here is this man who's done a complete about face as to what these vaccines are doing and what they're about. And Mike, I just come back. People need to understand that June rain at the moment is continuing to pump out the propaganda from the pharmaceutical industries and Bill Gates. And there's, there needs to be a lot of questions asked about the relationship between the regulators and the safety regulators, MHRA, and Mr. Gates and his foundation itself. There is something very, very nasty going on in the background. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, so, David, let's uh, come to uh, Professor Bridal then. 
Yes, yeah, so this is uh, Professor uh, Brian O'Brill from Canadian University. He's a viral immunologist and uh, has been speaking out about the facts of uh, COVID-19 and the vaccination programme. And the facts are extremely interesting. A recent study came out looking at 68 different countries and they plotted on a graph the, the case rate for COVID-19 and the vaccination rate in the country. And the more vaccinated the country is, the more problems they're having with COVID-19. So these people have the vaccine. Yeah, remember all the antibody titers they're showing, that's in the blood. But the, these people on average are quite poorly protecting their upper airways. And it's not the virus that's deep down the alve alveoli that gets transmitted to other people uh, because of the dead airspace when we exhale. It's the viral particles that are in the upper airways. So that's why the vaccinated can spread this just as efficiently as somebody who's completely unprotected. And so these vaccines on that basis, because they don't come close to conferring sterilizing immunity, they don't properly protect the upper respiratory tract, they only confer about four and a half months of immunity, it's absolutely 100% impossible to achieve the goal of herd immunity with these vaccines. 100% impossible. So, a couple of facts there, very important facts. Uh, the the COVID uh, case rate is positively positively correlated against vaccination rate. The more vaccination you have, the more COVID you have. That's a that's an interesting data point. And secondly, vaccination does not limit spread. So the entire justification for uh, coercive uh, mandates is has gone right there. Um, now uh, we've then got here. Um, uh, a CDC letter, a response to an FOI, possibly from a legal firm. Uh, the, the, the FOI was looking for uh, documents reflecting any documented case of any individual who, never having received a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, was infected with COVID-19 once, recovered, and then later became infected again, and then transmitted COVID-19 to another person. And the, the CDC said they have no record of any such event. So if you've had uh, COVID-19, you've got natural immunity, there's no record that you've posed any sort of risk to the population. So again, vaccine mandates, the justification, the pseudoscientific justification, the pseudo-legal justification has in fact been destroyed. Um, and there's more. Uh, this is uh, the Boston Herald reporting a finding in The Lancet. Uh, groundbreaking findings in The Lancet show that fully vaccinated people who come down with COVID infected others in their household about the same rate, 25%, as unvaccinated people did, about 23%. The vaccinated are just as much viral uh, load in the respiratory tract, making them just as contagious. So therefore, there is no degree to which if you have been uh, vaccinated, you pose any less of a risk to other people uh, around you. So again, mandatory vaccination, uh, the, the legal and scientific justification has been destroyed. Uh, sorry, David, just Back before, you, just before to... you move on, just before you move on, I just want to mm -hmm. remind everybody, if you haven't seen Friday's programme, to watch it, because uh, on Friday's programme, I think it was Friday's programme, I was making the point that, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, technical briefings for the vaccines and so on that, that are published weekly by the government uh, have got data sets in them. Those data sets are constantly changing. And so, uh, but in August or so, there was a data set which was showing CT threshold for uh, PCR tests for a certain viral load and showing that between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, the median CT threshold 
to reach a CT value to reach that threshold was pretty much identical between the vac vaccinated and the unvaccinated. So the fact that, the, the, that so that absolutely echoes what this uh, Lancet story is saying, and that you know again completely demolishes any requirement for mandatory vaccination or any justification for it. Utterly, the, the scientific and legal justification has been removed, demolished. It's a smoking ruin. Um, but it gets worse. Um, there are other concerns now coming uh, to the fore. So if we go back to Professor uh, Briddle, um, this is uh, an issue he's he's raising. First, this, this is the first time I've heard it raised, uh, a very important uh, safety concern. So what, what I will say is um, what, what I've seen uh, way too much of, and it does cause me very serious concern, is we're seeing... Um, people who had cancers that were in remission or that were being well controlled and their cancers have gone completely out of control after getting the vaccine. And what we do know with the vaccine is the vaccine is causes at least a temporary drop in T-cell numbers and those T-cells are part of our immune system and they're the critical uh, weapons that our immune system has to fight off cancerous cells. Um, so there's a potential mechanism there and all I can say is I've seen, I've had people contact me with way too many of these reports for me to feel comfortable. I do feel that that is a, that, that's probably, I would say, my newest major safety concern. Uh, and it's also the one that is gonna be by far the most underreported in any adverse event database, because if, you, if somebody's had a cancer before the vaccine, there's no way public health officials will ever link it to the vaccine. But what we're seeing is oncology teams that had pushed the vac cancers into remission or were keeping them well controlled can no longer control them after the vaccine. Yeah, David, uh, I think uh, for a bit more on that, if uh, people want to read Dr. Mike Williams' two most recent articles on the UK Column website, there's a bit of a hint there as to what might be causing that. And certainly he has uh, uh, said to me in the past that, that, um, you know, that people are seeing uh, you know, huge upticks in, in cancer rates following vaccination, or you know, at least the progression of the disease. Yes, and, and what we're seeing after vaccination is we're seeing much higher total death rates in the society, much higher levels of excess death than we had during the so-called pandemic. Um, and we're asking why. Well, this is perhaps part of the explanation as to why. Um, so given the, the uh, intellectual demolition of the case for mandatory uh, vaccinations and other coercive controls by the state, um, what is happening on the ground? Well, let's go to Austria. The Chicago Tribune reporting here. Austria orders nationwide lockdown for the unvaccinated. Um, and the justification, quote, it's our job as the government of Austria to protect the people, Chancellor Alexander Schallenberg told reporters in Vienna. Uh, we have therefore decided that starting Monday, there will be a lockdown for the unvaccinated. Right, so there we have a complete uh, uh, failure to connect uh, any either legal or scientific justification uh, to their actions, but their actions are proceeding nonetheless. And we have some video of the, the Austrians celebrating this. Uh, yes, indeed, but uh, keep talking, David, because uh, there's no audio with this. Well, this, this is, this is some, some uh, video from 1938 Austria and the celebrations when uh, the Nazis came to power. Um, and this is a suggestion here from... Uh, I, I, uh, a channel we've covered in the past um, 
our Twitter channel we've covered in the past is that this is happening once again. Um, and we've covered also uh, the tendency for uh, celebrity to be used to push um, the fear and to push um, the division of society into us and them, vaccinated and unvaccinated. And here we have The Hill uh, reporting that Gene Simmons, um, a, 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 a singer from a rock band, uh, rips anti-vaxxers, quote, if you're willing to walk amongst us unvaccinated, you are an enemy. Um, so there we go. He's very clear on that. But the same man, just a little while ago, uh, also said, uh, I think celebrities should basically shut their pie holes and do what they do best. Act, sing, tap dance, juggle balls and do all that kind of stuff. So he managed to debunk himself, which I thought was very nice. Um, and of course, the protest um, against the mandatory uh, lockdowns, against the uh, passports, against the show me your papers culture is gaining strength all around the world. Austria, Holland, Italy, and uh, this next video is from New Zealand. Doesn't that do your heart good? And uh, New Zealand, the country more the, amongst the most compliant anywhere in the world, no more, it would seem. And if you want a real laugh, have a look at the BBC hit piece on that particular bit of video, which is up on their website right now. Um, so the worm is turning. People are pushing back. They're finding their voice and they're finding strength to resist the tyranny. And um, Devi Sridhar, government advisor in Scotland, is not happy. Um, she tweets here, it's been a particularly bumpy work week. I know people are angry about COVID uh, on all different fronts, but don't, want, but, but don't want to be a punching bag anymore. I didn't cause COVID. I'm not even in charge of much. I'm just an academic trying to explain simply what's happening. That's all. Poor Devi. Do you think Devi, who's the queen of the blockers on Twitter, incidentally, who doesn't doesn't listen to any criticism, has been forced to listen to some criticism? She doesn't seem to be liking it very much. Poor Devi. Uh, and for more on that story, I point people towards uh, citizen journalists doing the job of corporate journalists. Uh, their piece, Devi Sridhar, expert or charlatan, is very good. Uh, yeah, because David, uh, she she absolutely cannot claim to be uh, just a you know just giving people information. She's been driving the policy. She was, she was the policy. Nicola wouldn't do anything without Debbie's say-so. Debbie was going uh, in, in the mainstream media and telling us all uh, where we could go, what we could do. She was making political statements about what the English could do and how it was all the English fault. Um, she was she was stoking divisions within the country. She was um, she was lying about uh, the safety of vaccines to children live on air on the BBC. She was doing a lot. She was a busy bee. All of a sudden now she does not want to play. It, she doesn't want to be a punching bag, Mike. It's it's too rough out there because people are pushing back. This is a sign 
that people are pushing back and that they have arguments and they have evidence and they have the ability to express themselves. And Devi, for all of her comfortable academic position, cannot take the heat. Good. Okay, let's move on then, Brian. And uh, full fact, um, who we are, this is a team of independent well, fact checkers. Uh, yeah, it follows on very nicely from uh, um, David's segment there. And yes, you've said it. So we've got this organization, Full Fact, that set themselves up to tell us what's true and what's not. And of course, they label themselves as independent. Now, UK Column's been watching this team for some time. We're not that impressed. But I was a little bit stunned to discover as we start to get suspicious of the accuracy of uh, ONS statistics. And we've said live, we previously had held ONS in high regard. They seem to do a good job. Their statistics could be trusted. And over more recent months, we're now starting to see more of a government policy line coming in than true ONS statistics. But I was fascinated to just discover this on the Full Fact uh, website. Let's bring in this uh, particular page. And if you press the button again, Mike, we should get a little graphic movement because uh, we discovered to our surprise that um, um, Full Fact has been using secondees from both the Government Statistical Service and the Office of National Statistics. So um, if you think you're dealing with ONS, well, you're not necessarily because they're in bed with Full Fact. So we decided to... Um, have a look at things in a bit more detail. We sent off a freedom of information to the uh, Office of National Statistics. You've got it here on screen. And we've asked when this Secondi program started, how long it's been running, what the value of the people um, is that the ONS is putting across, because obviously they're earning salaries. If they're not working for ONS, uh, that's a value. We want to know what that value is. We want to know details about the uh, heads of agreement or the contract. And uh, we've said to ONS, we don't need to know names, we just want the facts. So now we wait and uh, our public audience are going to be able to wait with us to see what ONS says about its relationship. This is just their response. So we're proving on screen uh, that basically they got that email. And now we wait to see. And uh, I'll just move on here to the um, uh, the Government Statistical Service, because when I went to look at them, I was surprised to discover that they're seconding to the BBC. So you think you're dealing with an independent government department, but no, it's in bed with the BBC. And if we click on the article here on screen with the BBC, this is what comes up. Secondment to BBC News, the time I had to deputise for the head of statistics. So um, this is a remarkable article uh, dated the 8th of November 2021. So we can see it's up to date. And uh, who are we dealing with? Are we dealing with the government statistical service or are we dealing with the BBC? We have no way of knowing. So I'm sure they're going to deserve a, they're going to uh, deserve a, um, a freedom of information request in due course. Yes. OK, thank you for that, Brian. No. Uh, let's move on to economic issues. Uh, and David, um, I believe this is, uh, well, it, the headline says it all, a fight over Biden's pick for a banking watchdog gets nasty. Um, so uh, lead us into this. 
So this is Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, so they're saying progressives say Swali Omarova would deliver much needed industry skepticism as comptroller of the currency. Republicans su suggest she's a Marxist. So, oh, let's find out a little more about the dear woman. Um, and uh, so they go on um, and they point out that this, this woman was um, raised uh, under the specter of Soviet-style um, uh, take over the finance system. Uh, they are, the Republican lawmakers are pointing to an academic paper she wrote imagining a new role for the Federal Reserve as a kind of public bank. And they started asking pointed questions about a biography. She was born in Kazakhstan, which was part, when it was part of the Soviet Union, and came to the US in 1991. She's a graduate of Moscow State University. Pat Tomey, the senior Republican in the Senate Banking Committee, noted that her college scholarship was named for Lenin, uh, and, and he took to the floor to demand a copy in the original Russian of a paper that focused on Marxism. But um, Omaroma describes herself as a free market idealist. So what is she? Is she, a, is she a Marxist? Is she a free market idealist? Well, let's hear what she's going to say about the possible role of the Federal Reserve uh, so our viewers can make up their own minds. Kind of trying to run with that ball and see how we can push the idea of creating Fed accounts, digital uh, dollar uh, deposit accounts that would be universally available to everybody at the Fed uh, to, um, to kind of push it a little bit uh, to the limit and to imagine what would it be like if instead of being just a public option for deposit uh, banking, this would be actually the full transition. In other words, there will be no more private uh, bank deposit accounts and all of the deposit accounts will be held directly at the Fed. And there are very interesting implications uh, from that thought experiment, for example, with uh, the much more uh, direct and proactive tools of monetary policy, like helicopter money, which is uh, you know, considered radical, primarily because uh, economists really do not know how to manage the issue of what will happen in the inflationary environment when the central bank needs to contract the supply of money. How is it po politically feasible for the central bank to effectively take money away? from uh, people's accounts. And so in this paper, I try to figure out a mechanism that would actually achieve that goal functionally without um, draining, uh, draining the money permanently from people's accounts. And we'll see if it works, if it doesn't. But David, uh, two points there. The first point is, this is central bank digital currency. This is exactly what the central banks are talking about. This is being driven by all the central banks, including the Federal Reserve Bank, through, the, you know, through its mouthpiece, the, the Bank for International Settlements. So if there's an accusation that you know, this is communist policy and she's, she's come from Russia and is a communist, where does, that, where does that allegation end? It certainly doesn't end with her. Oh, no, a very good point. Uh, but the, 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 the model is just a thought experiment, you understand? Um, digital money... Uh, on, on deposit at the central bank and the central bank when it wants to stimulate the economy will give you money, helicopter money, have some free money. And when it wants to contain inflation, your money will mysteriously and suddenly disappear. Um, 
That's the nature. That's the solution to how you get past the zero bound in interest rates. That's the solution for controlling the economy in the next phase. It's all based on digital money. It's all based on digital central bank money. And you're quite right, Mike. This is not just um, going to be this one particular individual. But uh, she was kind enough to write a paper on it and talk about it. So uh, we know a little more. Um, which brings us to a cartoon. Right, so we've got a couple of uh, couple of cartoons here. This, this I like this. So Bart Simpson is looking uh, disconsolate, and he says, "This is the worst inflation I've seen in my life." And then Joe Biden's correcting him, "This is the worst inflation you've seen in your life so far." So I thought that was very good. Um, uh, and here, it, for for those who who like to um, resist Marxists, here we have. Um, a piece of artillery uh, labelled the Austrian school, being, being loaded by a man uh, labelled Ludwig von Mises, uh, and the ammunition is called the calculation problem. And he takes aim at Marx and he blows him away. Uh, and if anyone uh, doesn't know what that's all about, then uh, please uh, look at our, uh, our Magic Money Tree um, uh, series, uh, which is uh, up on the, the main website and will be added to shortly. Uh, so just very briefly, I want to get your thoughts on this. This is from uh, the uh, Progressive Farmer website. Uh, they're talking about rising fertilizer prices. And of course, this is feeding into food prices. Uh, I'm not going to go into any detail here. I just want to show the graph. So here is the graph, David. And the green line is uh, 2020. The purple line is 2019. And the red line is 2021. And I think, you know, this this... You know, it, you know, it's it's actually not funny, is it? It's it, no, it's disastrous for people. I mean, this is that graph. I mean, I'm I, I'm sorry, I laugh because it is, it's it's funny in that it it gives lie to everything that the central bankers are trying to persuade us of. Uh, it gives lie to everything the politicians are trying to persuade us of. But for but for actual businesses, for people running, trying to run the businesses, trying to trying to feed their families and run their lives, that's disastrous. And we're seeing failures of large companies in the agricultural sector in Scotland now. And uh, the failures have knock-on effects, huge knock-on effects, uh, because it'll take out other companies and other companies and other companies. This is this is the way it's going to go. It's going to be extremely rough. Um, the, the, the next thing I've got for you here, Mike, is a, a, a paper called Common Sense, which reflects back uh, to the, the paper written uh, before the American Revolutionary War or War of Rebellion. Um, uh, this is talking about the case for an independent Texas. Um, so I, I would encourage people to look this out. Um, it's very interesting where this is going. Um, they talk about two Americas. And uh, so there are now two Americas, each with a distinct ethical system, news sources and versions of American history. In a free and tolerant society, two separate nations could coexist as the bumper sticker implores. But the modern United States is not free and certainly not tolerant. The two Americas hate each other with a growing passion. And if unchecked, that hatred will soon escalate into widespread violence. And they're then, they're then suggesting that, that uh, Texas should secede. And it's interesting as to the reasons, the reasoning, the problems that they see. Number one, the money, right? The money supply has been hugely escalated. So this is devaluing, debasing the currency. Um, uh, item number two, the debt. The debt has gone stratospheric uh, in, in recent years. So the debt has become completely unsustainable. 
uh, and then they're talking about other problems. It goes into health, education, and then they point at the solution being their constitution, which says all political power is inherent in the people and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for the benefit. And they have, they have at all times the unalienable right to alter, reform or abolish the form of government in such a manner as they may think expedient. And that's written into their constitution. And um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's one to watch as these pressures grow in the United States and in extra time we'll perhaps come back to um, what significance this has and similarities and differences when we're looking at Great Britain. Okay, now let's move on then to the Evening Standard and the headline is uh, Primary School Boys and Girls Wear Skirts to Promote Gender Equality. Yes, yeah, so this, this uh, cropped up uh, last week. Um, so we have here an Edinburgh school, Castleview Primary, it took part in an initiative um, for the first time in November 4 coined Wear a Skirt to School Day. Um, this is uh, the, so. The, this is Castleview Primary School. Uh, the next slide shows uh, a little extract from their website. Um, so you see the Castleview Primary School is into is 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 uh, concentrating on joy, kindness, respect, and honesty, and they are pushing obviously the completely forgettable acronym FACTS that means something to do with COVID, um, and they are obviously compliant with the Scottish government's policy. This received a very major uh, pushback in, in Scotland and elsewhere. Uh, in, times, in the Times, Neil Oliver uh, was writing, um, no skirting the issue, forcing girls' clothes on boys is not fair. Uh, children need better education standards, not virtue signalling. And he goes on to um, uh, point out that um, education standards in Scotland are falling faster than a piano tipped out of a window. And yet, rather than focus on giving pupils the skills they need in life, agitators, grifters, and troublemakers prefer petty virtue signaling at children's expense. I said it before, I'll say it again, leave the children alone. Um, and he, he then talks about um, it's uh, boys from age three and up are being encouraged to take part as usual. It's all about being inclusive, breaking gender stereotypes and promoting equality. If boys had no access to, uh, to skirts at home, the school would provide them. Implicit in it all was do it or seem to be unkind. So he's, he's identifying the pressure that's actually been brought on the children to comply with this. And uh, Stuart Waiton writing in Spiked. Now, Stuart Waiton's a Scottish academic um, and um, I, I, and often a, a very a very gallant voice in, in these areas. Uh, he was writing in Spiked how trans ideology took over Scottish schools. Now, Brian managed to predict this. I was discussing this with him last week. He said, oh, there will be a Scottish government um, guide to how to do this. Schools wouldn't do this on their own. They'll be being pushed. He was absolutely right. Um, so the, the article says the Scottish government says that even young children must have their chosen gender identity confirmed. Um, so the guidance document is called Supporting Transgender Pupils in Schools. It's a 70-page document. I would encourage people to look that up on the website of the Scottish government. It's got uh, information on pronouns, on toilets, on every detail you could possibly imagine, and it's all laid down. Um, and uh, Stuart Wayton writing here continues, I recently received a text from a high school teacher noting that the LGBT group of students in her school, aided by an LGBT teacher, is now agitating for all teachers to declare their pronouns and for this to be part of school policy. 
Uh, and he continues, yet parents who raise concerns about this will be fobbed off. The Scottish uh, guidance says that such parents may simply have inaccurate or, inaccurate or incomplete information about their own children. Uh, where this is the case, staff are instructed to create situations in which the young person um, have their views heard, helped by a support plan for the transgender young person. This apparently creates a safe space for transgender young people to be themselves and have their identities respected. The end result of all this for parents is that they are treated as a potential threat to their own children. Indeed, the government believes that concerned parents will often need to be kept in the dark in case their outlook and understanding does not comply with the new ideology. This reality-denying dogma has no place in our schools, he writes. So that's what's happening today in Scottish schools. I was looking ahead to what might be happening soon, because this all comes from, um, from um, a queer theory, which is part of critical theory. And this is a view where you subject the, the mainstream viewpoints to such unrelenting criticism and attack that they crumble under the assault. Um, in, this, in, in the case of queer theory, what's being attacked is the idea of uh, any sort of any sort of uh, uh, traditional roles for men and women, the very idea of men and women, the very idea of um, of any sort of uh, nuclear family, the very idea of having um, uh, a, 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 a society based on um, um, marriage, based on uh, even this, just um, uh, heterosexual. Um, relationships, all of that's under attack. So what is queer theory? Where is it going? Well, I, I found this young lady here uh, called Alan Walker. Uh, she, her pronouns are they, them. She writes, I am queer and a, and a scholar of criminal justice and social work. Um, she has written a book, um, Non-Binary University Instructor Calls to Destigmatize Pedophilia. The book's called A Long Dark Shadow. Um, and this was reported in the Washington Examiner. University professor says sexual attraction to minors isn't immoral. A sociology professor at Virginia University says adult sexual attraction towards minors isn't immoral. And um, this caused the university to release a statement um, that academic community plays a valuable role in a quest for knowledge, a vital part of this is being willing to consider scientific and other empirical data that may involve controversial issues and perspectives. Uh, and they go on to have to point out that following recent social media activity and direct outreach, it is important to share that the Old Dominion University is a caring and inclusive community and does not endorse or promote crimes against children uh, or any form of criminal activity. They quote the, uh, the, the Mr. This Walker here uh, saying that, uh, it, that they're seeking to um, protect children against abuse and not encourage it. Um, I hope that's true, but I feel that the uh, incessant attack on anything that might allow a child to grow into an adult with a balanced view of themselves and the world is going to be so destabilizing that the harm will be very profound and that this is all part of the agenda that, that's represented by queer theory. It's been introduced into Scottish schools now, it's been introduced into British schools now, and it will not stop with where, with where the skirt um, to school uh, days. It will continue 
uh, into um, normalizing paedophilia, uh, trying to rename uh, paedophiles as minor attracted persons, and on and on and on, because the issue with uh, critical theory is there is no end. There is no end point short of complete destruction of the society. Okay, thank you for that, David. Now, uh, if that's what's going on in schools, uh, Brian, what's going on in the BBC? Uh, well, we've we've got an interesting agenda, Mike. Uh, the Mail here reporting that um, uh, uh, Fran Unsworth, the uh, boss, really, of, of operations in the BBC, has told the LGBT staff in the BBC that they better get used to hearing views they don't like. And this is because there's been a backlash because the BBC has joined several other um, companies in um, backing out of uh, Stonewall's activities. So this is this is quite interesting that the BBC, that of course has been a bastion of positive support for Stonewall, has suddenly started to backtrack. And uh, if I just give you the second part of this, there's there's some quotes here from the BBC which are uh, quite interesting. Let me just get those up on screen so I can read them. Along with many other UK employers, the BBC has participated in Stonewall's Diversity Champions Programme to support our objective to create a fully inclusive workplace. However, over time, our participation in the programme program has led some to question whether the BBC can be impartial when reporting on public policy debates where Stonewall is taking an active role. After careful consideration, we believe it is time to step back from the Diversity Champions Programme and will also no longer participate in Stonewall's Workplace Equality Index. So here's the BBC that has been absolutely ramming Stonewall's agenda in the faces of everybody they can get via their licence fee and their broadcast. And now suddenly they're showing signs of backpedalling. I think this is as a result of the fact the public is waking up to how dirty and vicious uh, this uh, queer theory agenda is and the fact that ultimately it's pointing at children. And I think the BBC knows that at the moment they're heading into dangerous times. There's a lot of criticism of the BBC. So they're trying to uh, put a brave face on it and say, well, we're clear of this agenda. But uh, that's just my my personal opinion. Yeah, OK. Uh, thank you for that. Um, well, unfortunately, I think we're just about out of time. Uh, but David, uh, you had one final piece of video for us. I, I did. This was taken in uh, on Saturday night in Perth uh, and was, um, oh, sorry, that one. So I beg your pardon. Right. So I, I do beg your pardon. There's another one which we'll, we'll look at in extra time. This final piece of video we have is um, a, a police arrest of, uh, of a man who is terminally ill. And it shows why the police are being held in increasing um, lack of respect and, and, and are being viewed as simply a threat now by many people who would formerly have supported them. And the issue is that they have given away any... Um, any attempt at discernment, at personal responsibility, and they have become an instrument of of the, of the fall, for the following of orders, and those orders are often evil, and they are carried out uh, irrespective of the facts of the case, and they're carried out irrespective of the harm they cause. Um, and what's happening here is a man's been arrested, 
um, the, and as he's on the ground being arrested, he's explaining his case. He's coherent. He's making a good case. He's explaining himself well. And the police around them are simply using his statements to gather evidence of his guilt. It's uh, a very striking piece of video. Sarah, come and tell him. He can tell him that to me. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Just, just, man. I'm mooned at a speed camera. I'm mooned at a speed camera. Okay, well, that's a significant statement that you just made. Yeah, I'm quite happy to say that because it was one off my bucket list. I've just been diagnosed on the 8th, on the 19th of October with multiple system atrophy. I'm terminally ill. I've got a very short time to live. And it was one off my bucket list. Haven't you ever wanted to moon a speed camera? No. Well, I did. There's some damage to the door, unfortunately. It might need to fix in. I've got Parkinson's disease, heart failure, stage 3 kidney disease. I'm good at that, I've also got a system We'll try and get you off, but you've got to listen to the officers. Yep, from the front. We'll get that sorted out, we forget you are. Ready, two, three, and three. Very generous of them helping him out. I'm glad it's a pity he was down there in the first place. Now, I would put it to you, Mike, that um, even a short time ago, there, was, there would not have been a policeman or woman in the United Kingdom who would have conducted themselves in that manner. And now it is standard operating procedure. Yes. Yeah. Brian, final thoughts? I just, just want to add to that. And the fact that there was, I think it was six police officers there holding that man down, six. Was he violent? It didn't appear so. So um, for police men and women watching that clip, they should be thoroughly disgusted with their colleagues. And it's no good just watching. They've got to speak out inside the police system because this change of police behaviour has been engineered. This hasn't come out of nowhere. This is people playing with the policy of how police are trained so that ultimately they can't think straight. Yeah. Okay, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's the end of the programme for today. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Brian, and thank you, uh, uh, David. We'll be back for some extra on the uh, main UK column uh, live stream in a few minutes. Uh, and otherwise, we'll see you once again, 1pm, as usual, on Wednesday. Uh, see you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>